Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Today, I'm with Matt Alex, the co-founder of Beyond Academics, where he guides the most innovative higher ed leaders to transform their campuses with a future of work lens. Welcome to the show, Matt. Good to be here. Uh, I'm excited to have this discussion with you, Douglas. Uh, so much going on in the market space, a lot of different changes. So certainly would love to have uh, a really good dialogue in the next few minutes. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, let's kick into it with a little bit about how did you get your start? How did you get into this work of transforming campuses? Yeah, so um, you know, I didn't go to college to transform a university. I don't have a degree that says, oh, I'm going to go transform universities. Um, you know, I started like everyone else. You know, we, we go off to college embarking on a major that everyone thinks is going to be defaulted in your career. And the truth is your, your, your degree really never defaults you. And it enables you to learn something that interests you to go to class. I have a daughter who's 17, is about to go to college, and she asked me what major should I pick. And I said, I don't really care what major you pick, because in the end, I need you to pick a major that's going to allow you to be wanting to get up, to get to class, interact with the people that are interested in that, have dialogue, and be able to change things through that process. So pick a major that's going to make you curious and make you a leader around that. And I really believe that um, in my path, I, I started off, you know, at a university, you know, really at a, at a bowling alley where I was, you know, cleaning shoes. And, and I'm a criminal justice major that didn't know what to do with that major coming out. Luckily, I was um, social enough to ask someone that I was cleaning their shoes about what do they do on campus. And she happened to be an associate director of HR for the university. And I said, hey, Shelly, can you, can you find me a job? With nothing more than just that, because I, I didn't know what else to say. And she said, of course, Matt, because I've been servicing her for the past two years in the bowling alley. And uh, this is days before internet, days before uh, you know, text message. She said, call my office and let's set up a dialogue. And so, of course, I went through that journey with her. She was the first person that believed in, in me as a person. Um, just coming in and she found me an opportunity and uh, introduced me to the Office of Admissions and Records at a university as a you know, glorified clerk, to be honest with you. And, and that journey triggered a lot. It allowed me to see that I like to help people. I knew that um, I was process oriented, but I needed to also have someone lead me and guide me through this process of my career because no one teaches you that in college. And so I was lucky enough to uh, join an office that uh, the person who ran it saw a lot in me and she mentored me. And she mentored me through uh, a lot of different ways from even telling me to leave her office to go find another job at a law school because it had a better title. And she gave me the advice of, Matt, you have to leave to go up. You have to, um, you have to basically 
exit to move up in any ecosystem. And so she did. And so I went to work at a law school. And then eventually she brought me back and I became uh, second in command uh, to her, uh, her deputy where I ran the registrar's office at a university. And that allowed me to really find my passion at a university. You know, what was it? What was the moment that really kind of struck the spark for you with the future of work? Yeah, so that really was triggered from my time at Deloitte. So, of course, from my journey at the registrar's office to my time at Deloitte, I ran a uh, consulting firm that got acquired by Deloitte. And Deloitte was actually the firm that actually just allowed me to see the world of future of work. What is the work of the future? Who does that work? Where is that work done? And, you know, I was designing student systems uh, prior to that. And I recognized that the work of the future is going to be changing. Jobs are going to be changing. And then, of course, I said, then why are we not using that lens to rethink how universities should operate? Um, and also, why are we not using that lens to create the curriculum that allows for uh, universities to shape uh, the workforce of the future? So, of course, I became really passionate at Deloitte, and then I left to really focus on future of work, future of learning, and smart campuses that enable the work of the future. You know, that reminds me of a story. I think it was one of my first speaking engagements. I was asked to speak at a local college here, St. Edwards University, and it was in front of a computer science class. And the professor was pretty astute in the observation that, you know, we teach a lot of theory and a lot of, like, how to do this stuff, but we're not preparing people for the workforce. And so he was really interested in me sharing some stories around what do I notice when I hire recent grads or more junior individuals? What are the gaps I'm noticing? And so I came with that presentation. And, you know, I think it's really a noble pursuit for universities to think more about how to prepare people for the workforce versus learning subjects, right? Because, you know, there's a whole track of like academia where we're getting deep into the research and the academics. But um, how do we also juggle the fact that these people need to be prepared to, to enter into a, uni a whole new universe? Yeah, you know, I, I think the, the best way to even think about that is that jobs are changing. So when I was coming out of college, I, I was a criminal justice major. My default career was going to be in the juvenile system, uh, go become a police officer. And yet, uh, as a criminal justice major today, I design major um, back-end uh, technologies for universities. I look at smart campuses all over the place. And so when we think about the job of the future, how do you prepare them, it's more than a major that, you're, uh, that a university is preparing that student for. It's teaching them to be curious. It's allowing them to network in an ecosystem. It's allowing them to find passion through that process. And those are all important. But you now need to apply that to a ever-changing workforce, workplace, and all the technologies that come from it. Technology is advancing. If you just think about this, data is processed at 400 times the blink of an eye. And if you just think about it, blink your eye and think about that data processes 400 times the past. All you got to do is pick up your cell phone and you recognize that your iPhone has took millions of information and within seconds 
has validated that you are. There's so much of that technology in space, in around our ecosystem. What it's doing, it's actually changing the way we work, the practices that we have done. So the old days would have been a paper process. In today's world, we're looking at innovative practices that are enabled by the technology. And the amazing thing about this, the job that my daughter is gonna be coming and taking on in, in four years or five years when she's coming out of college, it doesn't exist because the technologies are gonna advancing in so rapid manner. Not only are we, that the, do we need to teach our people the technology, you need to have functional understanding of how a technology is gonna change an industry. So if you think about it, just look at Amazon, and if you look at Uber, Uber is not just a, a, an app, it has location intelligence to it, it has algorithms to it, it has a whole new gig ecosystem to it. All those are, are innovative methods of how to interact with people. That is the kind of stuff we will see moving forward. And that's why students have to be lifelong learners and not you're defaulting into one major. And I think you're gonna have to have short bursts of learning, which allow for you to pick up the new innovations that are gonna come. You know, you kind of touched on a few things that I had been thinking about and I'd written down during our pre-show chat. And I'll just kind of throw them both out to see what you think here, because it's like, it's gotten me really intrigued. You know, one of them is this note, you mentioned lifelong learners. And I think there's a huge opportunity with continuous education that I think is not well established, right? Our institutions, our structure is around putting people through a four-year process after high school and boot, we're done, right? And then maybe some people do some executive MBA thing or whatever. Like I almost see an opportunity to reimagine the process where we're, we're kind of plugged into a system that's always keeping us refreshed and renewed and curious. You're hitting, you're hitting the right tone, uh, Douglas. Um, we live in a, what we call it, or I call it an earn it model, right? Uh, you're earning a grade. You're earning your time in, in a classroom and, and you're getting something. You're earning a degree. You're earning a title. And you're, everything that a university looks for is about have you earned it? Have you understood it? Whereas if you think about moving it from an earn it to a learn it model, you're now looking at the competency of that understanding of the topic that you're at hand. Any business says, you know what, after four years, we're done with that customer, I'm gonna mm. go to the next set of customers. <laughs> Higher ed is the only one that says, you know what, I'm gonna focus on the four-year customer and then you know what, I'll maybe get them back for a couple more years. They're actually missing out on an opportunity for a lifelong learning model, but they haven't been able to get past the, the amount of money that they make on that four-year, right? And there's a, there's a whole cost issue that's happening here because they're all focused on the earn it model. So everything that they do is to manage the earning of that degree, as opposed to pulling away all the things that are managing that and moving it to a learn it. So the focus becomes the student and the content that he needs, as opposed to, is it an A? This is financial aid, mm -hmm. is it, you know? All those things are gonna come into play. So I, I think as we move forward, and if schools, and you're seeing the mega schools starting to do it, you're gonna start seeing community colleges starting to do it, you'll start seeing mid-market schools gonna start to do it. And the reason the mid-market schools need to do it, because if they don't do it, they're gonna be out of business, 
because the big schools can live on the brand recognition of the four-year mm. program, right? The yeah. cruise ship that, that everyone wants to get on for four years, that's great. But that's going to be the journey of a Ivy, a big state school, and anyone that has that ecosystem, you're going to have that. But the mid-markets have to become nimble. They got to become the Amazons of our ecosystem that turns to a lifelong learning model that allows for myself to go back and re-engage, even for a one-week course, a six-week course, a seven-month course. Google's coming out with certificates to compete. Well, universities have the opportunity to, to create micro-credentials, unbundle their education, yes. and then drive them to a different ecosystem in terms of a lifelong learning model that is aligned to industry. Because right now, most university curriculum is stale. And what I mean by stale, it's the same curriculum that was approved by their creditors five, 10 years ago. And yet, we don't even navigate. Our cars are driving by themselves. And yet, we're on a five to 10 year ecosystem in what we're teaching. And that's the, th that's the thing that I really think we, uh, there's an opportunity for the mid-market, the HBCUs, anyone that is in the crosshairs of the pandemic should be thinking about a lifelong learning model and with a future of work lens. You know, I also think about your point around the majors a moment ago, and I want to combine that with your point around the unbundling, because I think the majors themselves are a bundling that is not serving us anymore. And if you really yeah. look at it, the thing is, is they're kind of artificial boundaries, right, that are constraining the way that we think about learning and the way you think about our identities. I had a lady on my podcast that studies hybrid identities, and her book's called More Than My Job Title. And the fact that, you know, it's almost like a personal branding type thing, but I think it goes deeper than that because it's like what I know and what I do and how I think about myself. I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, to me, there's kind of some fundamental skills and principles that we learn in higher education, like how to do really good research, how to, you know, especially when there's capstone projects, we're learning how to collaborate and how to work on things and get things done and also how to master complex topics. If you think about those fundamental skills that we could be teaching outside of some major, and then also maybe wrapping in a little complexity theory around teaching people how to do things like sense-making. Like, I'm kind of vague there. I'm talking about a lot of stuff, but I think there's, if you look at that whole corpus of everything I just mentioned, I think there's a ton of opportunity to shift how we teach and how we prepare leaders and, and workers of the future. And if you think about my comment to my daughter about a major doesn't matter, that should be a message to most universities to say, hey, is our majors even, you know, is that what we're defaulting our, our student body to? If they are defaulting, you know, a career to a major, you're actually hindering the ability for that person to really grow and adapt to everything that you have to offer. My daughter is about to go to a college and, and her one of the choices is that one college is giving her the ability to create her major. And I helped her design that major around future work because I said, you need to understand entrepreneurship, you need to understand management, and you need to understand the financing elements of it because there's an element of how you will interact with it. So what I said to her is that in, instead of picking a major and getting defaulted to it, 
unbundle the things that you need for a college to give you so that when you get into the workforce, whether you go into a consulting or whether you go work for a government or whether you come and work for a, you know, a, a startup, that your skills as entrepreneurs, as the ability to manage, you know, all these, look at the things that I'm asking her to go think about gaining from a college. And if she went and just picked a sociology major or she went and picked a criminal justice major like myself or picked a econ major, like just, just think about all the majors people have, philosophy, econ, those are so stale in the way that we actually have to create the person that is in our workforce. But why do we do that? Why do we title it that way? Because we are in this earn it model. Oh, I earned a criminal justice degree. I earned a management degree. I earned this. And then I, I have to earn the right to go work in a management. And the reality of it is there's many people who are philosophy majors and music majors that are really good managers. They're, they, they, they can interpret things way differently even as a music major. Like it's, it's those kind of topics of unbundling and reframing it. But we live with an old guard, right? We have accreditors that haven't stopped and said, okay, schools, we gotta think about the future of work and the workforce. They haven't done that yet. We have government that just gives money because they need someone to accomplish a degree. So everyone follows a four-year degree, which is really expensive. And then of course, at a university and academic setting, I'm a PhD person that has a major, that has research on this topic and I need a major to do that. All of that is a systematic issue as opposed to stopping and saying, what are we building here? What's the product that we're building here? What's the culture we're building here? Let's build the culture of this university to support the growth of this individual. And not only are we gonna have them here for four years, maybe we have them for less than four years, but we're gonna have them here as a lifelong learner to continue to learn the culture of whatever is happening in the ecosystem, which we call the workforce. So I wanna come back to your point around the rate of growth. So, you know, as we're thinking about automation and, you know, the sheer advances in technology that we're having, you know, AI, being able to do tons of things for us that we wouldn't have to do before. Uh, I have a hypothesis that, you know, there are some humans that will go way deep into the technical and we're going to see a little bit of a divide, right? Because the, the more sophisticated that the algorithms get, the more reliant we become on them to do certain things. And we'll need to lean more into our humanity things that, that humans are really great at. And I think facilitation plays a really strong role there. And with your focus on the future of work, I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on how we might show up better as humans in the future. Yeah, so I'm gonna go a little, I'm gonna go a little technical here in terms of future work, because you gotta really understand the basics of what we're trying to get at, is that when we look at the work, I group them into two categories of work. And that will then dictate who does that work, where is that work done, and when is that work done, right? So all those three elements of future work, that framework needs to be thought of. And when I think about it, I look at work in two um, elements. There's structured work and there's unstructured work. The structured work is things that don't change. 
it's the same sequential, logical, rule-based activity that never changes. It's, it's the lecture of Econ 101 that has been done for, for life. That's structured content, right? It is the, the data uh, person entering data and they're taking one form and putting it into another system and that's structured work. So you will need to identify everywhere there's rules, structured, sequence, and what do we do with that structured work? We automate that work. We put that in a video. We put that in recording. Why do we do that? Because we take that person that's been doing that for a long time and you bring the capacity of that person as a human to start doing the unstructured work, the collaborative work. So the unstructured work is when we sit and say, okay, what requires critical thinking? What requires critical reasoning? What requires body language? What requires dialogue? And when we look at unstructured work, we now have pulled all these people that have been doing mundane, boring work in a cubicle, and we're now offsetting it to a machine. And you're saying, now let's take that person and let's have real amazing human interactions in a classroom, in a workplace. And so what will happen is you will also look at unstructured and, and uh, structured work and say, does that require someone to be in face-to-face? -face? We are, we're virtual right now, but we have a connection because we can see each other, right? So you're going to identify, hey, this unstructured work could be done remotely, that there's also technology elements that need to be automated, that you still need humans to, to kick a batch off, or you need to have some validation that that machine did it right. That could be done remotely at any point in time. So you have this ability to use structure and unstructured work as a diagram, I call it human-centric value, of designing campuses based on this uh, framework, and then I can design what work will be done on campus, what lectures can be done on campus, what type of teaching could be done on campus, and then what else can we do and move it off campus, make the campus more efficient, make real estate more available, and drive more efficiency to a campus or a workplace at any point in time. Sorry if I went deep on the, the, on the, on the tacticalness of, of future work. No, I, I like that notion of the structured versus the unstructured and how we can easily look at ways to automate the structured. The thing that was kind of surfacing for me was like, especially as the rate of growth is accelerating, there's probably things the computer will notice as structured, but we don't. And I think that's going to be maybe one of the skills that we have to really learn to hone, especially our young people are having to navigate these decisions around what do I go learn? Because is the computer going to be really great at that in five years versus now? And I guess the other thing I'll throw out there just to kind of see if any of this triggers anything for you is you mentioned the human in the loop kind of stuff, right? Where not only is the algorithms doing stuff for us, but we might have to validate something or we might have to inform it in some way. And so we're, we're kind of, it, it's kind of, someone was talking about augmented intelligence. So I yeah. thought it was kind of a cool, instead of augmented reality or artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence. And I think that's, that's probably a, a really great way to describe what's coming at us and how do young people prepare for, or even all of us prepare for this kind of like, there's a computer in the meeting. 
and it's augmenting all of us, right? It's not replacing us. This is making us think a little different and, and work a little different. Yeah. So I always believe our brain is built with 100% capacity and you start to use capacity uh, at different places. A lot of people, when they go to work, do a lot of structured work, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they don't bring out their humanness to anything. And so I believe that uh, when we do move that work to the AI element of it, there is a lot of work inside of organizations, inside of campuses that are gonna need humans to do human stuff which is somewhat like connectivity. So I believe that machines are gonna enable us to identify the right interactions to do our work. And what I mean by that is AI will, will take all our mundane stuff, but it will inform us to then allow us to, to, to maybe make a decision a certain way for the betterment of a student, a betterment of a customer, because he or she is not wasting her time trying to put data entry into a system. He or she has now got that insight that says, this student doesn't really do well, you know, in a English setting, you know, in a room. You know what? I'm going to find a course that allows him to do a asynchronous learning through, you know, this mode of, of, of learning. Like, that's just an example of how you take a human and instead of me looking and saying, what off what room is open to put this student into a class, I'm saying, I now know not what's, what's open, but I also know what my, the person that's in sitting in front of me, what their learning chemistry is. What are they, how do they uh, thrive? How, what are they struggling with? Allows me to interact with that student in a much more effective way. I'm giving you examples in, in my higher ed setting, but it, it can apply to a customer base. Because I believe a student wears it wears three hats. They're a consumer, they're a customer, and they're a product. And when I look at my future work lens and I work with schools about it, I say, how are you dealing with them as a consumer? That means a frictionless campus. How are you dealing with them as a customer so they're satisfied in how you're promoting them? And how do you build them as a product and a representative of the university that, or the college that they are representing when in the workforce? You know, I think that's a great lens for anyone who's hosting meetings or teaching people in any way. So facilitators should listen carefully to this model that you're sharing because everyone they invite into an event or gathering, workshop or meeting, you know, they should be considering those three elements. You know, how are they treating them like a consumer? How are they treating them like a client? And then finally, that product. If we're not getting to some outcome then we're just like checking boxes and going through motions and we're wasting everybody's time. Yeah, and as a facilitator, we're all facilitators in life, right? Mm -hmm. Whether I was a partner at my firm at Deloitte, I was facilitating. I was getting followership on the content that I was trying to take to market, right? When I think about facilitation, it really starts with who am I really trying to serve? And how do I read their learning chemistry? How do they absorbing information? I always put my presentations in three or four different ways in the way that I speak to an audience. One, sometimes it's visual. Someone seems, needs a visual. Some people need stories and I tell them stories. Some people need to be able to interact with me and dialogue. So in my facilitation, I enable that to happen because people have different learning chemistries, visual, audio, auditory, experiential, and um, 
dialogue, right? I want to be able to give that experience through facilitation at any point in time. Of course, I, I'm not a big fan of PowerPoints because it kind of stifles me because I'm a storyteller. So, but I know people like visuals and they want to see what my bullets are. And, they, I, and so I give it to them, but I don't ever look at it because I'm mm-hmm. speaking through it in stories and I allow for them to understand, oh, that's his experience because some people want to relate to that. And then of course, there's a lot of other just dialogue of, I don't even do, normally I don't do podcasts without having a lot of interaction. I want interaction. So the sessions that I do, I do it at Clubhouse and I'm doing it on my what I call Zoom Ins, is I want people to challenge me. I, mm. If I just sit around and just talk about, oh, this is what I think future of work is, I don't grow because honestly, every event, and I've already grown with you, Douglas, I need to understand from them what they're looking for. What are they learning? Because that'll inform how I facilitate moving forward because my yes. audience is ongoing changing. That's right. You know, it's all about the dialogue and the interactions. And so I wanted to come back to your point about the learning modalities. And in my research, I've found that people can shift between modalities. So, you know, they might be in a kinesthetic mood right now, or they might need to have the bullets along with the story right now. You know, it's it, it tends to be multimodal, and it can shift over time. And something that was bubbling up for me, coming back to your point around the algorithms and the structured, you know, that, that seems like something that machine learning could start to understand and give the facilitator advice, you know, be able to assess in the moment or even or over time, you know, how to best prepare content for a particular set of participants and how to do what the learning science folks refer to as differentiation. Can we customize for our particular folks that are in the room? Yeah, it's all about input, right? It's input into uh, whatever technology you're using to get that information. So AI, of course, could even read tone at this stage. They could read what the tone of the room is based on the content that was put in, maybe the questions that are being asked or the interaction of the dialogue. Like the machines can actually give you of that. Uh, Universities could have tone read on an essay saying, hey, these five things lend exactly to you to what this university wants. So AI is can be used in so many different ways and being informed is as important a step. But a lot of it is how do you start to engage even before your facilitation on mm. the people that's coming into your into your audience, into your room, and how do you then prepare that? But then also be ready to change because people will change even though they may think certain ways. They may have heard some other dialogue that shifts them on the fly and you have to be able to address that during that process also. 100%. We have to be resilient to emergent phenomenon. And when we're teaching facilitation, we always talk about adaptable agendas. Because yeah. if, if we're not adaptable, if we just create that syllabus, that agenda, and just like we got to run it like clockwork, then, uh, you know, we're, we might be okay some of the time, but there'll be many times where we're doing a disservice for our learners. So, in, and a lot of it is you're not, you, you're not reversing how you engage as a facilitator. So, instead of me being the, the facilitator, the panel, the expert on stage, you're, you are the facilitator that allows for the room to become 
the energy of, of the value of the discussion, right? I'm mm. a big believer of how do you bring value from the, from the room or the audience, and that's through facilitation, understanding what the challenges are. You know, you're on Clubhouse like me. Uh, I use the audience all the time. So there's times I open up a room on a certain topic, it will change because the audience is having a different discussion and the value of that room wasn't because of the title that I created and the, and the initial topic that I introduced. It became a room that has a thousand people in it because of um, the dialogue within that room and the topics that are being covered. So who's the power there? It's the people in that audience that are making the room that powerful energy that allows for us to facilitate the, the content that comes from that. Yeah, it's like an emergent natural phenomenon, right? Like an algae bloom, right? And if you try to stifle it, control it, or lead it too much, it'll the reaction will never happen, right? It yeah. has to flow naturally. And I always think of facilitation as gardening, right? We don't make that plant grow. We just nurture it. We just, you know, we remove the weeds. Like in your room, you know, if someone came in and was being really disruptive or condescending to people, that would stifle the energy. And so you would sh- you'd weed those out. You would shut them down. But if someone's changing the topic slightly, but they're passionate and it's on track, you're letting it happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like I said to you, it isn't about us anymore. It's about Mm. them. I always have a hashtag, your voice matters. I put that on every time I I do a clubhouse or I do a session when I'm facilitating something, hashtag your voice matters, because I don't think it's my voice that is really driving the discussion. It's the voice that's in my discussion that matters. Absolutely. You know, it comes back to your three part framework around thinking about participants as clients as well. And so, you know, we would never not listen to our client and their voice, right? It's like, that's part and parcel to how it works. Um, I wanted to come back to a point you made a second ago about it not being about the event itself. It starts before that. And it starts once they first even learn about this thing and how are we nurturing them in those moments as well? So to your point, like making sure they understand that their voice matters and that this is going to be participatory. It's going to be different. And we're encouraging them to show up in a new way. Yeah. So I, I ran a session where I had about 100 people coming into my session. For 50 of them, I engaged with them every day, five days before the event. And the 50 of them, I didn't engage at all. And the reason I wanted to do it is I wanted to see the difference between the people that engaged immediately and the people that took a little bit of time to engage. And then also, I also wanted to see which of those 100 attended. And so in the ones that I didn't engage in the 50, I had a a no-show much higher than I almost had, I think I had two that didn't show up in the 50 that I was communicating for. And when I, when I explained to them that not everyone in this room had that same engagement. And so you can hear the room be like, yeah, we didn't, get, we didn't get that. We didn't get that preview. We didn't get this. And I was saying to them, this is why engagement is as important as the topic that you're really talking about is because mm-hmm. engagement allows for them to recognize they're an important piece of it. I know that 50 of them was hindered by that presentation, but it was the only way that I can explain to them 
that having your voice heard and be felt and be a part of, hey, I'm, I'm excited, because in my, the 50 that I was engaging with, is I was like, hey, countdown, we have two more days before we're together. Hey, we have one, hey, I'll see you in a few hours. Man, you know, the thing that jumped into my head, what a cool thing would have been to like, when they show up, pair up people that got the engagement and didn't get the engagement yeah. and have them talk about the difference. Cause then they could like in those small groups kind of unpack it a bit. And like, yeah. so that way the people that didn't get it actually don't really have a lesser experience because they can bring perspective to the other person that they wouldn't have got otherwise. So it's like this little shared moment of like contrast. That's cool. I'll try it. Cause it, I thought it was a, I, what I was really trying to prove to them is, as a as a leader, and, and I was I was doing this in my partner role, and I had consultants and and managers, and and I needed them to re- recognize that when you are asking a client to come to a meeting, don't send them an iCal and I'll see you in in two days. <laughs> I'm trying to get them to recognize that they need to recognize they're an important part of the journey that we're going to go and have a discussion about. And I'm, I'm hoping that they recognize that I see the value of that. That's what I was really trying to get from my managers to recognize that it, it isn't just, oh, I'll just send an email and I'll hope to see my folks there. I needed them to recognize you have to show them that they mean something in the journey that you're asking them to embark on with you. So I want to kind of draw us to a close here. And I'm gonna, I guess I'll ask you one wrap-up question, which is, what do you think is the next big thing? Hmm. I'm always a future, I'm a futuristic kind of thought process. So I have a lot of big things in, in my head. Um, I, I believe the big next thing is we're going to see a, a ecosystem that will be more decentralized and that algorithms and uh, things will allow for a much more personalized uh, way of how we engage, which will then also allow us to have a more social uh, reputation economy, meaning uh, the interaction between what I and you do could be rated. The way that I am engaging through my university or how my engagement is through my uh, activities, you're going to see, we have a little bit of that going on, but you, I think you will see digital wallets, you will see NFTs, you're going to see a little bit of blockchain coming in because it's going to start decentralizing because I really believe that we're going to go more into the learn it model of concepts. So instead of um, putting all these structures around earning and trying to manage that, you're going to start to say, how do we get real value? And who's authorized to say, hey, Doug is a good person uh, that facilitates well, or Matt is a good person that can lead this well. That doesn't come from me putting it on a resume or on a LinkedIn. It comes from others being able to say, Matt is capable of doing what you need. And I think you're gonna see that through digital wallets, uh, uh, a little bit of through blockchain, I would say it's not as far off, but it's a concept of it. I think uh, blockchain is is um, is scary for some and, and very unknown to others. But I think as people understand, blockchain is like the internet. We can't define what the internet was going to do, but now when we use the internet, it's the underlying backbone of how we engage. And I believe blockchain will do the same thing as we move forward. You know, I've been following blockchain for a while now, and... Something I found recently or that just clicked for me recently was this notion of quadratic value. And this kind of comes from the Ethereum folks, but this notion that planting a tree downtown or in the local park 
has value for society. But who's going to reward someone for going and planting that tree, right? And, yeah. and the blockchain, and, and to, to your point, these decentralized ways of working and coming together could potentially create societal rewards, this quadratic value for people that do things that benefit society that normally would not have economic benefit. And that takes a lot to unpack, and it's a little abstract, and we won't see how it plays out until this stuff becomes mainstream and people start doing it. But wow, is it a, a, an interesting thought exercise to think about how do people start behaving when these systems start rewarding things that you do for societal benefit? So the way that I always explain the impact of what blockchain will have in the future, I just go back to the year 2000 when everyone thought an internet page, uh, a web page on HTML was the internet, mm-hmm. right? Everyone thought that internet was email, right? And you know what? In those days, that's all that a, our computer could do at that with that speed. Like, uh, think about the time where it loaded. I mean, you're much younger than me, but the, it would take forever for a one web page to load. We it loads up in seconds now, right? It's because over 20 years, uh, advances, microchips, all these things have happened. Uh, we have location intelligence. We have Wi-Fi. All these didn't exist when we were doing in the year 2000. We were doing internet, right? The, when it started to really come into play, we're kind of that's where we are right now in blockchain. So when we hear Bitcoin and we hear ledgers on a, a, a transcript on a ledger, that's that's HTML pages. That's that's the email of what we're doing. You will start to see use cases start to be applied when blockchain gets adopted in a way that allows for the decentralization of activities to happen with what you're calling this quadratic value. It really is about the interaction between us. Right now, there's a lot of people who own the rankings of things. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they're incentivized by the systematic rank. The U.S. News World Reports is systematically not a good measure for if a university is good for your son or daughter because universities are playing the game to get in that ranking. When you are in a blockchain ecosystem where people who went through a university, you know what they're uh, what they're making now, you know what they're uh, providing to society, you're getting feedback on that person. You don't need to look at a U.S. News World Report. You will start looking at uh, a blockchain ledger of a portfolio, a person that says, wow, that person that went to University X, which isn't an Ivy, is producing pretty amazing, and his his ability to make impact is different. I'm just giving you an example from my world a little bit, but I think it is the power of the customer being decentralized and then being able to see what impact our the corporations or things that we're having on them and how is that influencing the trajectory of that person? Love it. It's going to be an amazing world that we're headed toward. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap there. I just want to give you a moment to leave our listeners with a final thought. It's interesting. I have a lot of thoughts. And so giving you one is always a a little tough. You know, I, I always say this is an opportunity that we have in front of us to really transform what you're really passionate about. You have to look at what you're passionate about. What is the future of what you're passionate about? How do you start thinking about uh, enabling yourself to understand what are the future 
activities of that passion? What are the future opportunities of that job or that ecosystem? What industries are you really into? Also, you have the opportunity to really step out of the, the traditional norms of what you're always been boxed in. You might have had a major, you might be in a career trajectory that hasn't gone anywhere. The opportunity that's in front of us now allow for you to, to step out even a little bit to understand what those are in front of you. And if you're able to take that opportunity, is going to be the first step in, in really finding the passions beyond what you've always been doing. That'd be my uh, one key thing takeaway. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today, Matt. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. It's a good time, Doug. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.